0: When we came today, before that, I was like, I'm sure, I'm sure I've been to California. I'm sure I've met Nick. And then as soon as I saw your lobby, I'm like, totally. And then, because uh, we were here in 2018, and I think that was um, just at the beginning of the scooter wave, uh, and and you took us on our first scooter trip. I feel like
1: we formed a scooter gang. We, yeah. Yeah, and there's five of us, I think, <laughs> and we went to the university and yeah,
0: back. Yeah. It was Matt, I think Matt said something like, this is the coolest he'd ever felt.
1: Joe White first visited us at Capital Factory in 2018 when he was general partner at Entrepreneurs First, a people-centric early-stage investment group headquartered in London. During Joe's first visit, we had an epic scooter ride from Capital Factory down to UT, along with Catherine Allen, who was on the podcast a few months back. Joe came to see us again this year at South by Southwest with a new job as UK's tech envoy to the US. That essentially makes him one of the highest ranking diplomats to the U.S. on behalf of the United Kingdom. I'm excited for you to hear the conversation he and I had about startups and innovation on this episode of Austinpreneur. Welcome to Austinpreneur, our show about the stories that made Austin, Texas a global hub for startups. The show is produced by Capital Factory and hosted by me, Nick Spiller. As a reminder, by joining Capital Factory, you can plug into the ecosystem where the stories on the show were set. Learn more about us at capitalfactory.com. Today, Joe represents UK's tech sector at a critical time. However, his roots go back to being the child of an entrepreneur, as well as the founder of a successful e-commerce startup.
0: My mom was actually an entrepreneur, and, and um, not not in the tech space, but she'd always been doing this kind of thing. And, and I was always interested in business growing up. I went, um, I studied economics at, at Cambridge University in the UK, and um, having failed to secure myself an internship at the Bank of England, which turns out to be a good thing, I then went to work at a software company in in the summers. And um, it was the second year I was doing that that This was like in the mid-90s, this guy who had the then title of Head of Internet, which in the mid-90s was a bold title. Um, He was like, I want to set up a tech company, but I don't want to quit my job. And I was like, well, I'm going back to college. Why don't I look for some clients? We'll start doing that. So the first, um, we were doing basically website and digital uh, design, a lot of the early building. We did the first uh, website for this thing called The Big Issue, which is a UK um, kind of homeless publication. Uh, we then did like the London School of Economics. We then got Disney as a client, and then as the wave of the first dot com boom started hitting the UK, we picked up a whole bunch of dot com clients and the first internet bank, Egg, and a bunch of different companies. So I was um, I never had a proper job, so to speak, as in I like, rolled straight out of university straight into running a tech company, and then one of our clients uh, who was had set up the internet bank egg came to do her own startup which is a company called Moonfruit, where my technology my agency built most of the tech we started working on this together we took investment from um, initially from the uk and then from silicon valley uh, macromedia as was pre adobe uh, put in some of the uh, uh, the cash there by far our best investors at that generation we ended up merging the two companies, going off this crazy journey. And uh, that, that woman, Wendy, uh, is also now my wife, which also oh, makes, the, wow. makes the journey even more complicated. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, <laughs>
1: and, and so your, your wife is pretty involved in technology as well. Totally. And, and yeah. so yeah. What, what is she doing now?
0: Well, so yeah, so, so she has a computer science degree. So she's, okay. the, she's the engineer from Imperial. And we, we effectively ran this business together. We built it over 15 years through dot-com boom and bust. We took it to about... It was an early uh, website and e-commerce platform. So we got to about 7 million sites on the system. This was back when millions were cool. And uh, we built it about 150 million ARR.
1: Being co-founders, is not easy, you know, getting through marriage. And, and it is And doing, doing both of them is yeah. uh, quite the task.
0: It's actually a, a great comment to make because I think sometimes we think of entrepreneurship as like the success path when you have all the people staying there. And then I sold my company for <laughs> billions and it's great. That's all true. But I think that the... the the human challenges on the way. I mean we had um you know during our you know company founding, kids, fund running, all the rest of it, there were definitely difficult periods. And we had a lot of coaching during that, which I think as as founders you need anyway. You find if you start a business in your twenties and you end up running it for a decade or more, you go through your thirties and into your forties and frankly life changes. You know, getting that support as you navigate that without trashing your life at the same time so yes it was a challenge gratefully we've made it
1: when we got the call that his majesty's tech envoy wanted to visit capital factory we weren't really sure who the tech envoy was or why he'd want to see us as it turns out the tech envoy is a pretty big deal and in true cf fashion the person who recently was selected for the job had already came by for a scooter ride
0: I'm actually the first tech envoy that the UK's had. So mm. the, the good bit of that is you get to kind of create what the role is, and the terrifying bit of that is you get to, you have to create what the role is. But yeah. the, um, the the tech envoy was created out of a thing called the Integrated Review, which was a UK foreign policy statement about uh, just over two years ago now. And this is about the UK's place in the world, the strategy, how it will exist. And science and tech were a core tenant of that strategy. And so the idea was creating this tech envoy position to uh, be based in, in California. Um, not quite as an ambassador to the nation states of big tech, but you know, something a bit like that. So, um, so I, I'm based there, and the portfolio I have runs across four major blocks of UK interests. There's the tech policy landscape, that includes things like uh, online safety or encryption or competition policy. Then there's the R&D piece, which might include collaborations between UK and US schools, so, uh, particularly around emerging technologies like quantum or synthetic bio or AI. Then there's the trade piece, and this is a good part of the, the like the South by Visit Today, for example. UK companies expanding to the US, or US companies expanding to the UK, or capital flows in both directions. And then finally, the national security bucket, which uh, increasingly spreads its way into all those other pieces. Uh, as you well know here, given the amount of uh, activity you've got going on. Right, uh, right. We're here the on the,
1: at the Center of Defense Innovation at yeah, the right. Factory. Yeah, that's right. And, and so also, at, at the end of your name, there's... MBE, yeah, not to be confused with an MBA. No,
0: that's true. So an MBE is uh, it's part of the British honours system. Okay. So, um, and y- y- they're they're essentially given by the palace. Um, mine was was uh, given by the by Her Majesty the Queen. Um, uh, funny enough, my wife and I were both awarded MBEs for services to UK technology. And um, when you're awarded these things, which are which are you know, pretty rare and special. Uh, You then have an investiture, which is a day where you go to the palace. And um, my wife was awarded hers six months before um, I was. And hers took place at Windsor Castle around about Christmas time. And uh, they're always issued by the palace, but you never know who's actually gonna present it to you. Mm. Um, And then, so while we're sitting there in this room and and the doors open, and then Her Majesty the Queen walks out for for my wife. Yeah. Um, And uh, so I was in the audience with our kids, uh, this is at that, at that age, uh, at that stage, probably uh, our 90-year-old monarch um, presiding over this, you know, quite long but fabulous ceremony, um, yeah. going through the knighthoods and all these other pieces. Um, I then received mine six months later at Buckingham Palace mm-hmm. uh, with Princess Anne. So uh, again, an extraordinary day, but but
1: kind of fun. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure you'll never forget that that <laughs> <That's> experience. <right. laughs> and, uh, very very interesting, and. What have you learned since taking your your role as a tech envoy?
0: I came into this um, kind of as you know from from twenty odd years in tech and VC beforehand, and um, this role, as I said, was created to kind of up the UK's level of engagement in gaming these things. And I think, from my perspective, more folks need to come from the private sector into government as opposed to just the other way around. I mean, government, uh, uh, like it or not, determines the way a lot of this infrastructure works tech has become uh, a fundamental part of the fabric of our economies, our democracies, our societies overall, and increasingly with important national security implications. So I think coming into this, this is really an opportunity to, to like improve that level of conversation between policymakers and big tech. Well, not just big tech, all tech. Tech, I think, starts from a place of creation and optimism, and it's often the unintended consequences of their enormous success, which leads to challenges which government then have to get involved in. Uh, we even saw that, frankly, uh, over the last 72 hours with the Silicon Valley Bank collapse on both sides of the Atlantic, which which required a bit of government support to um, save our collective ecosystems. So, you know, what what I've found coming into this is, you know, there are, there are good people on both sides of the Atlantic, both in the U.S. administration and the U.K. administration, working on a lot of these uh, problems. I think the more we can get that ecosystem engagement, um, what we don't want is uh, government coming into things and uh, making changes which you know aren't as well thought through as they could be or, or have unintended consequences And therefore the more the ecosystem can engage the better we'll get and I think the ecosystem also has to recognize some of these unintended consequences as a result of this technology or change do require some kind of boundaries around them and therefore working hand in hand with government to get those things right I think
1: is helpful for all of us yeah yeah it's uh, in Austin back in the mid eighties when our tech ecosystem was first born, uh, one of the, the, you know, original community leaders here was Dr. George Kosmetsky, right. founder of Teledyne. And mm-hmm. uh, at the time, Dean of the business school at the university of Texas, mm-hmm. he wrote a book called creating the technopolis, right. which was all about the public private partnerships mm-hmm. and how government universities and private sector companies, uh, have, 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 to work together to to do exactly what you just said mm-hmm. and collaborate, and, uh, which is interesting because I don't think that that is well known in Austin. Although yep. it is certainly our foundation and, and you know something that that is is a, a superpower of ours.
0: Yeah, no, agreed. And uh, even the history of Silicon Valley itself, which had a lot of government and research collaborations, and I think that's government does fund a lot of fundamental science, right? And it's from that that we get the pull through into the tech ecosystem, sent picked up by right, private capital and so on. So when these things work well, it's 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 awesome. It's what you want um, when there is friction within the
1: system. It doesn't help any of us. Universities are an ideal spot to gather talent for tech startups. Joe and his wife, Wendy, recognized this fact when they became part of the early phases of Entrepreneurs First and helped pioneer an entirely new way of forming startups.
0: EF was started in um, about 2012 um, by Matt and Alice, who are two British founders, and it was based on the fundamental observation that in the UK, which has like four of the top 10 research universities, it's got, uh, produces a lot of engineers, um, Matt, the, the chief exec, studied at Cambridge and then at MIT. And at Cambridge, very few people were doing startups, and at MIT, like, everyone was doing a startup. And Matt's like, what the hell's going on with this? Why have we got these great quality of engineers that don't choose entrepreneurship as their default Choice in a way that you might do at Stanford or at MIT or whatever. So EF was set up to drag in this raw talent, sometimes pre-company, as in people knew they wanted to do it, didn't know what, but they were they had like a PhD in computer science. In which case, don't join the Quant Fund in London, don't join, you know, Google UK or whatever. Bet on yourself. So EF started bringing in these cohorts of highly talented individuals. Everyone had to quit their jobs or quit their research projects or whatever and do this six month program. And that's a brilliant um, sorting mechanism. If you don't want to quit your stuff and take that risk, then you shouldn't be doing entrepreneurship anyway. Um, so you get these people, uh, you massage them into teams over the course of the six months. The team is bad, and bad usually means low productivity or just not that real exciting buzz it's a bit like falling in love you know when you're in love right, yeah. uh, when the team is great you know it's great right. if it's not great it's not great um so uh, that process 100 founders might produce 40 companies probably half of those won't work but the remaining 20 ef will typically back around three quarters of those 15 16 will go on to raise a seed round at the end of that process usually two or three million dollars um that process while sounds WEIRD has produced $10 billion worth of value now Mm -hmm. and EF operates in London, Paris, Berlin, um, Singapore, We did have Hong Kong for a while, Bangalore, and Toronto, and uh, I got involved in that uh, along with Wendy, my wife, after we'd sold the company. And we got involved when EF was about six people in a basement, and we were initially mentoring them pre-funds, so we were writing checks into most of these companies as a way to give them the capital they needed to fundraise. And as the ones we were backing were doing better, we typically uh, thought, let's industrialize these process. So partnered up with Matt and Alice, the founders, raised the first institutional fund, which was about $60 million started investing that on the back of that we took the money from reed hoffman and Greylock, which expanded ef globally mm. raised the next fund which is about 150 million dollars um uh that portfolio is now you know hundreds of companies as i said you know worth about 10 billion the biggest companies now we've got a couple in the billion category uh you know we'll see what valuations look like at the moment but it's uh, it's directionally it's been extraordinary
1: Back when Joe first visited Capital Factory, Austin had a lot going for it, but was still a Tier 2 startup ecosystem. Since then, the pandemic has changed the way startups are built, and the trend has been Austin's friend. Joe and I reflected on the changes in Austin since he came in 2018, as well as the greater impact COVID has had on the startup world.
0: It's funny, I expected to recognize it more than I did, but so much has changed. And even coming in here to the Capital Factory, I recognized the lobby, though even that seemed just fuller and richer and everything else and the the extent to your offices here and the amount of um, the amount of people the amount of uh, uh, collaborations you know have the number of co-housed people you've got I mean it's um it definitely feels like it's a a buzzy environment which is just I mean when, when we came 2018 Austin was clearly a thing and was you know South by had always anchored it in a unique way and it was clearly on the rise but you know COVID seems to have accelerated all that and it's great to see so much success here. COVID, these things were happening already, but then COVID accelerated that trend where people realized you really could have entirely virtual teams, you can base everywhere. And I think particularly amongst the kind of engineer groups, you know, you can code wherever you are. And so if you get that that virtual team working, and there's really interesting parallels between ecosystems like Austin and the UK, Mm -hmm. in that everyone still has stuff to learn from Silicon Valley, and that's still kind of the big beast in the room. But actually you don't need to be there permanently in the same way anymore and while you can keep your engineering in Austin or in London or in Cambridge or other places because frankly the talent is slightly more affordable, the quality of life is often Mm -hmm. better Mm -hmm. you're not going to have them poached every 10 minutes by a company across the road and you can tap into that Silicon Valley madness when you need to Mm -hmm. because the game is still played there at the craziest level and particularly and we saw the Live Oak folks this morning, their point about you know the startup scene needs local capital, and it does. And therefore, having that seed funding ecosystem where where they are, because that's where the early stage support is. And when you need to tap into the Series B and the C and the D and the scale capital and the, you know, exec hiring of whatever, and these are people who are mobile, you can do that from Austin. Right. You can go and visit Silicon Valley. You can do that from London. Go visit Silicon Valley. So there's a lot more in these places, and I think, and therefore, you know, certainly we see this with UK entrepreneurs looking to expand to the US. They're all like, should we come to Silicon Valley? And the answer is not necessarily. I mean, you need to go where your customers are and where your, where your team will be. And then if you need to get to Silicon Valley for money or for conferences or whatever, you can do that. Um, so, yeah, I think this is a great opportunity. And it's great to see you guys thriving in this way.
1: And how can Texas... Compete better to get UK entrepreneurs to come here, you know, versus the other regions in our country.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great question too. So we have, we have. So our our consul general is based uh, in Houston and comes to Austin with the team. Uh, we've got a, a our now Department for Business and Trade. I stumbled on the name because it was literally changed a couple of weeks ago when the UK. Uh, recut parts of the government structure to create a new ministry for science, technology and innovation um, and took the international bits of business and put it together with the domestic bits of business, a bit more like commerce in the U.S. So those folks are, again, based in Houston. um, We have a network across the whole U.S. And their job is specifically to support expansion of U.K. companies into the U.S. uh, and vice versa. And so in terms of um, uh, what... Texas can do what Austin can do. I think part of that is actually just getting that message out. I think you've got a few UK entrepreneurs here, which who I've seen when I've came in. So it's you know great to see the some of the folks have discovered it and made it. Yep. But um, engaging with with the UK team in Houston to kind of give get that message into the UK. We have trade delegations that come out um, from the UK, and these are things that I know you you guys have hosted Austin yep. some of these before. But the more we can do things like that, um, the UK is now doing. Uh, memorandums of understanding with different states in the U.S. Um, we're working on one with California and with Oregon. We've done them uh, on, a, on a couple of states already. But that's the kind of thing with doing that sort of thing on a state by uh, wide level. Texas is, of course, a powerhouse of, of the U.S. economy, second largest state, and, and so on. Probably, probably pushing for that top spot at some point too. Work but <laughs> I thought you might do. Um, so th- th- I think there's a lot. To, there's a lot you can do, and that that story. I think the same thing that's attracted people to Austin from. Uh, you know, the US coasts is exactly the same kind of stuff that we can do to attract them from the UK and indeed other parts of Europe.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of AustinPreneur. Don't forget to check out capitalfactory.com to learn more about us and join our community. If you have thoughts about the show or ideas on how we can work together, reach out to me directly via email, nickspiller at capitalfactory.com. Shout out to the Capital Factory Dream Team for making this podcast possible, and special thanks to Aaron Handworker, who masterfully recorded and edited the show.